0: So anyways, um, why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of Daniel and uh, tell you a little bit about where we're at. Daniel chapter 7 is where we're at. We're going to be taking a look at Daniel chapter 7 and then Daniel chapter 8, so two chapters today. Um, While my iPad is not working. Here we go. Okay, so Daniel chapter seven. Uh, I want to give you a quick little uh, background as to what we've been doing. So if you guys don't have a Bible, like uh, we typically do, raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get a Bible. We'll be finishing up the book of Daniel in about three weeks. So today, and then two more weeks, and then we'll be done. Uh, and in the beginning of October, we're going to go through what's kind of commonly we've been doing over the past several years, multiple years, is our kind of annual uh, vision. Series, which is an opportunity to really rethink and to dig deeper into who we are as a church and how we see God has called us to live and embody the gospel in San Luis Obispo, in San Luis Obispo County, in our homes and neighborhoods and workplaces and so on and so forth. And then uh, after we finish that little three week deal, which you guys are going to have a unique opportunity to hear from each one of the elders and pastors in our church that are going to be teaching one of each of the messages. Then from that, we're going to be starting a brand new series going through the book of 1 Corinthians, which uh, if you've ever read the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, it's a really, really unique book written to a community of people that's not unlike our world and community which we live in today. And uh, I'm excited about jumping into that as well as we're going to have a bunch of uh, Bible teachers that are part of our church family. They're going to be digging in and being a part of a collective and collaborative to teach Scripture to you guys. I I think it's going to be a really huge Benefit and blessing to each one of you guys as we continue to go through that. So uh, we're going to finish up the book of Daniel in about three weeks, but what I want to do right now is I want to circle back to what we've been at is Daniel chapter 7, and then, like I said, jumping into Daniel chapter 8. So why don't we pray real quick, and then we'll do a little bit of background. We'll jump into the storyline, and hopefully all of this will make sense. So God, we, even right now, we come to you. We just invite your presence here in this place. God, we recognize that apart from you, from your presence, Uh, Lord, all we simply have is um, just this gathering around an incredible book, but what we want, God, is your presence to bring it to life, to bring our hearts to transformation, and then ultimately, God, to send us out of here on mission, to have a deep intentionality of how you want us to live and embody the gospel. So we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name as we look at your word this morning. We all said, amen. Hey, before we uh, jump in, two things that just came to my mind as uh, as I was thinking about this. You guys all sat on like two little flyers. Uh, One is an opportunity to serve, to get involved in our church in order for things to happen, not only here on a Sunday morning, but all throughout the week. It takes an enormous amount of volunteers and servants, people that have a heart for God and want to use their talents and treasures for the Lord um, and so maybe that's you. Maybe you have unique uh, areas of expertise or you have a little bit of time on your hands and you would like to devote that. Again, it could simply be as like an hour a week, two hours a week uh, to, to dive in. It's a unique opportunity for you to use your expertise, your talents and whatnot to be a part of what God is doing here, either on a Sunday morning or if Sunday morning doesn't work for you to uh, even use your time and talent throughout the week in other variety of capacities. Um, So if you would take a moment, if you would like to fill it out, you can either fill that thing out or just go to our website, cowperish.com forward slash serve, which is actually better because some of you guys have chicken scratch, and it makes it extremely difficult for our office staff to even read what the heck you're writing. So just do everybody a favor and just go to our website. It would be way easier. Um, So there you go. Uh, But then secondly, there's that little flyer. uh, When we go back to two services next week, uh, which again, just by way of review, what's the first service timeout? 8:30. 30. Oh, guess what? Uh, we've been meeting every single week throughout the summer at 10 o'clock to pray. We've just been calling our pre-service prayer. We're going to continue that pre-service prayer time uh, beginning next Sunday. However, rather than at 10, we're going to – we because we're, we're such good Christians, just like Eric said. Thank you. Um, mature Christians, I guess. Uh, we're going to be meeting at 8 o'clock for our pre-service prayer time. So if anybody and everybody that would like to be a part of that, we really feel the importance and significance of being a community that regularly practices prayer. Prayer is our way of basically saying we cannot do this on our own. We need God's God's power. If all we're simply doing is something that can be explained over and over and over again, then maybe we're not doing something quite right. We want to come with a deep expectancy uh, as we gather as a church family and as people come from a variety of walks of life, people walking with Jesus, people far from God, people uh, agnostic, people atheist, people raised in Christian homes, people not, We want to come with this expectancy that this God actually transforms and touches and remakes people's lives. So we realize we can't do this on our own. So I want to personally invite you to gather with us next week at 8 o'clock to just come and pray to begin the whole uh, new season of our church as we move on into the fall uh, in prayer as we kind of jump into all the new cool things that God's going to be doing in this new season. So back to Daniel. I want to jump right in. Our time is limited here this morning. So I'm going to be short and hopefully concise with my words. I want to jump in by beginning to take a look real quickly in terms of this recap. So we started about three weeks ago, this is week three, uh, looking at the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 in particular, I should say. And what we have been doing throughout the book of Daniel is, uh, I mentioned from the very beginning, there's going to be occasions like flying. We're going to fly really low and notice detail and orient ourselves, according to the text, uh, in that particular light. Uh, focus on some key points and whatnot. And then there's going to be occasions we're going to fly really high and look at a big general overview, which means we're not going to be as intricate in terms of the details. We're just going to be looking at large swaths of uh, scripture and passages. Uh, Today kind of is the pivot for that, where we will start by looking at some of the explicit details, and then we're going to fly really high over chapter eight. So um, for some of you that are wanting me to go really deep into chapter 8, I'm going to totally disappoint you, and I'm not sorry. Um, but if you would like uh, information, I'm happy to point you in the direction of some good, uh, more extensive teaching on this. So if, if you are that person, it's just like, ah, oh, I was hoping that we would go through every single point-by-point detail and figure out who the small horn is and who the antichrist all these all these questions that you want, I'm not going to answer necessarily, but I'm happy to point you in the direction of that. But what I will do is I will try to take a look at the big picture um, items that I think the text is trying to point to. So um, again, as far as fidelity to the text, I'm hoping to be as faithful to the storyline and the narrative as I can. So there you go. A little bit of uh, caveat and disclaimer and whatnot. So what we did is we entered into Chapter 7. We started off by looking at Chapter 7 and identifying this kind of a, a pivot in the, ch- in the book itself. Uh, chapters 1 through 6 is one segment of the book of Daniel, chapter 7 to the end of the book is a whole other segment, Uh, chapters 1 through 6 is Daniel interpreting dreams of world militaristic tyrants, Daniel chapter 7 on is basically for the most part dreams that he receives and then being given interpretation as to what those dreams are by alternate sources. Uh, so it's kind of a marked difference in the entire book itself. So what we said at the beginning of Daniel chapter 7 is that Daniel has this really odd and strange dream. So what we've been looking at, basically, for the most part, is a really odd dream that Daniel had. So if you've been reading through this, you're like, this is really, really strange. I don't have no idea what this has to do with any life. There's beasts and weird creatures and so on. It's a dream. It's a dream. How many of you had weird dreams, all right? How many of your dreams make total sense? The point of the matter is, this is a dream that's odd, it's weird, and yet there's some detail of sense that's being given to Daniel as he uh, describes and then recounts his dream. So what we looked at in Daniel chapter 7, again, these first two are just uh, recap over the past two weeks. We looked at, first of all, the beastliness of humanity because he has a dream of four beasts that come up out of the water. And what we said is that this is kind of like the, uh, in comparison to Genesis chapter 1, it's the upside down from Stranger Things. So um, from the regular world, you have the upside down, like in Stranger Things. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 is like the upside down to Genesis chapter 1. In Dan- Genesis chapter 1, you see out of the ocean comes God's breath that then brings life and habitation and habitable uh, planet and humanity. In Daniel chapter 7, you have this inversion where out of the ocean, or out of the chaos, out of the waters, comes uh, terrifying monsters, these beasts, that devour and destroy and terrorize humanity. Don't breathe life in humanity, actually take the life of humanity. So it's this odd storyline. But what we pointed out is that these beasts represent world empires. But not only do they actually represent world empires, they also represent fallen humanity, which you and I were all part of this entire big human project, meaning that all of us, from the very beginning we've been looking at, we all share characteristic traits of beastliness, right? If you don't believe me? Ask your spouse. I guarantee that they will confirm that. Or your roommate, or a workmate, or so on and so forth. We all have this problem of beastliness. And so last week what we looked at is the godlikeness of the cinnamon figure. So uh, again, not without going into background, you can just go on the website and check out the message on there as well. But we looked at this figure, his name was Vicenna Man, and it was a really important, significant passage, I would even say, in the entire Bible, pointing to really the vocation, the ministry, the identification, the role of who Jesus was. So if you weren't here last week, highly recommend just check out that message online. So, what I want to look at today, again, I think it's a little bit off because it was last week today. So, it's over. so anyways, um, you get the idea. Today we're going to be taking a look at number three, which is the vindication, healing, vocation, which is offered to this. Uh, renewed humanity. So, it, again, in the chapter and summary, we see the beasts, we see the Son of Man figure, and thirdly, we see this group of people called or identified as holy ones or saints, uh, the way it's identified within the passage. So hopefully that all makes sense. I want to read a quote that I read last week from Tim Mackey. Uh, I think it makes sense. It'll play into a little bit of what we're going to be looking at, and then we'll jump into the passage. Uh, he said this, Humanity has turned out to be beastly. So all we can hope is that a human will come and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So in other words, from the very beginning of the storyline of the Bible, you see God creating human beings in his likeness, in his image. They're given a vocation. They're given an invitation to trust God. But instead, what ends up happening is that humanity disbelieves God. They choose to follow their own heart, their own intuitions, their own desires. And as a result, they drift off into beast likeness. And this gets really bad because it leads into what we would identify as rebellion. And then Adam and Eve have children, and the hope is maybe their children will turn out better. Well, it doesn't turn out so much better because one of their sons actually becomes a murderer of their other son. It's a very highly dysfunctional family. Next, as you see, as the storyline goes on, things actually just progressively get worse uh, until you get, I think, it's like chapter nine in the book of Genesis, the Tower of Babel begins to be dis, uh, described and begins to spread its tentacle-like uh, you know, elements all throughout the earth. In other words, death begins to spread. Brokenness, beastliness begins to spread. And the problem is, is the question that the Bible seems to consistently be asking is, is there a human being anywhere that will get this right? Is there a human being anywhere that can get this right? And to some degree we are also plagued by the same question. I mean, isn't that kind of what politics is? Isn't that what the debates are all about? We're kind of like looking, where's the one person that will get the whole thing right, that narrative right? Well, the fact is, nobody's going to get it right. I mean, you look out on humanity, nobody seems to get it right. We all, as human beings, are deeply flawed. We're all beast-like to some degree. We all have propensities to treat people with great dignity and value from time to time, but we also find within us is this innate sense of beastliness. And so the reality is, all of us are plagued by brokenness. And so, what we see is in the storyline is we're introduced to this guy like the Son of Man. And that's where that figure, which ultimately points to Jesus, becomes so significant because what Daniel's telling us in this dream is there is one person that actually gets it right. He gets it so right that he's actually welcomed into the very heart of God, in the very presence of God, in the very heart of everything. And on top of that, this Son of Man character is also given and sh- uh, or shared with this unique you know, attribute of God, kingliness. He begins to rule and reign with God. And this is where the story gets more complex and more beautiful, because it's not just the Son of Man figure that's given or this shared throne with God, but also this other group of people called the saints. This is where the story gets mind-blowing. Okay, so you ready? So what I want to do right now is I'm going to read, that's a little bit of the backstory. I'm going to read a passage for you guys, and then we're just going to jump in. So Daniel chapter 7, verse 15 to 18, kind of summarizes this group of people that we would identify as the holy ones or the saints, which we'll come back to in a second. As for me, Verse 15, Daniel, my spirit with me was anxious, and the vision of my head alarmed me. So he obviously wakes up in the middle of the night, he's got a panic attack, he's freaking out, he's sweating. What in the world did I just envision and see? This is terrifying. It goes on to say, I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. And he stood, and he told me, uh, made known to me the interpretation of all of these things. And then verse 17, these four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. verse 18. But the saints this is where the story gets really interesting. But um, this is just a side note. If uh, they've uh, ever heard of like, like reading your Bible and be paying careful attention to, to the butts, the butts in the Bible. Uh, the butts are these transitory words that, that point out one particular thing, but then it leads into a whole other thing. This is kind of one of those moments. It points out the, the four great beasts, but it goes on as a form of transition into the saints, whoever these people are. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom. This is where it gets crazy. Forever, forever, and ever. Just in case you're wondering, how long is the kingdom that they're going to have? Forever, forever, and ever. How long do our lives last? I don't know, 70 years, maybe, if you're lucky. 60, 80, 90, who knows, right? Uh, how long is you know, a president that maybe you don't like in a current administration going to be in for? Maybe you know, a few more months if, if, if that's what you hope. Uh, what about another future administration? What about uh, if you're living under a tyrant, say, for example, in China? What about if you're in Syria and you live in a, swat, a portion of the land that's occupied by ISIS? How long are those tyrants and those dictators and those leaders are going to be in positions of power? Well, at some point, there's an expiration date. And that's contrasted with what we're told here. That whoever the identity of these people are, these saints, these holy ones, they will be given uh, this kingdom. They will receive it as a gift. It indicates by grace. That's what receiving is. It's, It's a gift that's offered to them. And this kingdom that they are being given or gifted will last forever, forever, and ever. So there you go. What I want to do now is I want to basically just take a look at three things. And then we're going to end by watching uh, another video from the Bible Project on the new humanity. And hopefully it all makes sense. And then we'll uh, move into a time of just response to what God wants to do in our hearts by way of asking some questions and singing. Uh, But what I want to do, I want to take a look at basically three things. So we'll look at, first of all, and we'll just go to the first one, the saints with the beasts. So the contrast. And I think that's how this dream begins to be identified, that the way that the Holy Spirit intends, I think, to inspire this passage, which we believe this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, yes, Daniel had the dream, yes, Daniel writes down some uh, thoughts and ideas, and he is kind of writing and chronicling this whole deal down, but we also believe that the Holy Spirit is carrying him, breathing into him, and identifying certain elements. So I want to look at basically this contrast of three main ideas within here. Number one, we'll take a look at this contrast of the saints with the beasts, so the word saint, basically, again, this is a portion of the book of Daniel. It's actually written not in Hebrew, obviously not in Greek, but also written in or written in this language called Aramaic, which, which is a unique for the book of any book in the Bible because most of the books in the Bible are either Greek or Hebrew. But this is a unique section that's actually written in Aramaic. Uh, but the word that's actually used there for holy ones um, almost is very similar to the Hebrew word for holy, kadosh. Is, The Hebrew word. An idea can basically mean something of weightiness or holiness or separate idea that's kind of conveyed there. And it's a word that we oftentimes will translate into the English of saints. It's the same idea in which in the New Testament when you see Paul, for example, writing this guy that's writing these letters to uh, the followers of Jesus. By the way, did you know that followers of Jesus in the New Testament were called saints? Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about the word saint. Personally... I don't like the word because it comes with a lot of baggage. Now, that's not in any way a slight on the Bible word because the Bible word is not saint. The Bible word is holy one. It gets translated as saint. But I want to stick with the phrase or the word holy ones. I think that's more important. I think it's more descriptive because you and I, if you are a follower of Jesus, meaning you belong to the son of man, the new human, the new Adam, you are part of his his crew which means you are a holy one. Your life has been devoted to him. You belong to Jesus. Your life is no longer yours. It's no longer you to just decide how. I mean, you can make choices, of course, and those choices could either lead to life or destruction or ruin or happiness or chaos. I mean, we make choices, but oftentimes the choices that we make are not in alignment with the new identity that we've been given. If you're a follower of Jesus, the identity that you've been given is you are a holy one. So with that being said, we see the saints, the holy ones that are given this kingdom. That's in contrast with these beasts. Now, again, we've been, we pointed this out a couple of weeks ago. But the idea of these beasts are these mutated, weird beasts coming up out of the water. Then they begin to walk on land, which if you're familiar with Jewish kosher diet, you know that there's certain types of foods they're not allowed to eat. They're, they're kosher, right? They're off limits. Uh, for Jews to eat them, they become defiled. So they're defiled food. The idea behind that, there's all sorts of cultural ideas behind that. But the point of the matter is is that it was off limits. They they weren't allowed to eat that. But the point that I would make is that these beasts, they're unclean, defiled, mutated, beast-like beings that ultimately devalue humanity. So I think that there's a strong contrast between these holy ones that are given this kingdom versus the beasts that are grasping for power and authority and dominion. Do you get that? You see that contrast, which kind of plays out a little bit in the next one. The second thing that we notice, that uh, the contrast is with the saints who are given an everlasting kingdom, with the beasts whose reign of terror is only temporary. Now, what we're identified with in the story is that these saints, um, they're given something that is a gift to them, whereas these beasts, they're, they're clamoring, longing, grasping, even murdering for power right? Which you might be like, that sounds a lot like today. Like, yes, that's the point. We are all to some degree affected or infected by the beastliness that has infected all humanity throughout all time. In other words, what we do is we use what power we have. Some of us have greater authority and power and influence uh, than others. But what ends up happening is we use our influence, power, and authority or sphere of influence oftentimes to grab power, because at the end of the day, what we're oftentimes doing is we are trying to create a long, sustainable life for ourselves, right? I mean, if you think of it, that's what we're often... I mean, all of the, one of the reasons why I think we do what we do is we have this deep longing for eternity in our heart, meaning is we want to outlive. We want something, a legacy to outlive us. The problem is, is that most of us, obviously not all of us, at some point we will uh, all of us will die but the legacy that we're longing to hold on to will die with us i mean just i want you to pause and think about this this is what the beasts were grasping for they're grasping for this kingdom this authority this influence this ability and ultimately will be stripped from them however the saints whoever these people are are given something they didn't earn they didn't deserve that is offer to them free of charge. So we notice with regard to the saints in this contrast, number when the saints of the Most High, they shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever, as we had already read. Uh, that's in contrast with these beasts. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So what's interesting about this, in some of your translations, this might say for times, time, and half a time, which, again, depending upon what version of the Bible that you have, or the various footnotes that you have with regard to this, or the various spin, or background, or other commentary that you may have heard about this. Uh, it's a reference to three, three and a half years, somewhere around there. But the point that I would make is this, is that there's all this controversy, not necessarily this controversy, but discussion at least, at minimum, in terms of is this three and a half years, is this three and a half days, is this three and a half periods, or seasons, or whatnot, uh, periods of time. Um, and, and again, I, I'm not going to get into a debate on that, but what I will suggest, is it is about a period of time, and why that's significant is this, reason alone. For the saints, the kingdom they receive will last forever, forever, and ever. Those who reign in terror, those who bring crushing evil and wickedness and brokenness and ruin and violence upon humanity, it has an expiration date. I want you to think about this, because for some of you, you live in a life right now where you face this form of terror, this brokenness, this hurt, it's a, maybe an oppressive relationship uh, with a boss or a spouse or a family member or some sort of situation where you find yourself in a place where you heart, your heart cries out for justice. You wish somehow something would come in and invade and rescue you from that situation. And what I want... you for you to hear that I think Daniel is trying to convey very loudly and very clearly is that no matter what type of oppressors we have in our lives, even though it may seem eternal, even though it may seem everlasting, even though it may seem never ending, it has an expiration date. It will conclude. It will finish. The terror will be over. The oppression will end. And this is what I think Daniel and his readers would have read into and been absolutely blown away with a sense of awe and worship and thanks to God. Next, I want to jump into the next slide and begin to take a look at a little bit of chapter 8. Again, like I said, I'm not going to spend a lot of time thinking about this, but I want to just focus on a couple things, key elements. Number one, the book of Daniel chapter 8 is another vision It actually comes about two years after Daniel chapter 7, as far as the vision is concerned. Again, it's another really odd, strange vision. There are some deep overlaps that a lot of scholars believe that's going on here uh, that references uh, the Medo-Persian Empire as well as uh, the following empire, probably of uh, Greece Greece and whatnot. But the point that I would make is this, is like the first vision that Daniel has, the second vision also is one of beasts. And these beasts, like the first vision... Crush and destroy and devour and ruin and oppress and cause havoc upon humanity, just like the first beast. And just like the first beast, the second set of beasts in a second vision also has a time limit, and that's what I want to focus on for you to think about. Again, if you want to dig deeper in chapters eight, please talk to me afterwards. I'm happy to point you in some right directions. But this is the big takeaway that I want for us to just think about. So going back to verse eight or chapter eight, next slide is he says this. And then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate and giving over the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? Now, a lot of scholars believe that this is a reference to a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, which actually took place about 100 some odd years before Jesus even came on the scene. Um, Some scholars, again, this is where it gets really debated, right? Some, and this is where I would suggest really strongly, dude, no matter how or where you land on the spectrum of Bible prophecy, to some of these things, I think you just got to have, you got you to gotta have an open hand with regard to these things. I know people, and some of you guys have been, been, been brought up in churches where this is all the pastor ever talks about is prophecy, and it's just constantly fighting on that and constantly making big issues over this. Um, at the end of the day, if prophecy is not bringing you into clear, sharp, relief, focus of Jesus then it's a, it's a drift of the original intent of prophecy. So the point that I would make is this, is that regardless of who this is or where this is at, uh, the point of the matter is, again, in verse 14. And then he said to me, 2,300 uh, evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. The point of the matter is, I think that's being emphasized here, is that just like in Daniel chapter 7, in Daniel chapter 8, these beasts, in their rampage of terror, have an expiration date. It will come to a conclusion. That should cause everybody in this room that in any way, shape, or form that has felt the boots of any form of terror or oppression or uh, bullying or any form of being pushed off to the margins or being discriminated against to breathe a big sigh of relief and say, how long, O oh Lord? When will this come? King Jesus, you rule and reign. You are good. And no matter what type of oppression I find myself in the midst of, at some point it will come to a conclusion. So, as we move on, I'm going to look at the very last part and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, The saints who victoriously overcome what they suffered, by way of contrast, the saints who victoriously overcome what they suffered with the beast who caused the suffering were ultimately overcome with defeat. So again, on the one hand, this group of people called the saints, these holy ones, these ones that are belonging to God, Yahweh God, uh, they will victoriously overcome. They will be given Victory that they didn't earn, they didn't deserve. It was a gift offered to them um, in spite of their defeat or in spite of their suffering, which means, again, uh, that people who follow God are not in any way, shape, or form um, able to outflank suffering. Suffering is a part of humanity. It's a part of life. It's a part of something that you and I will oftentimes at some point go through. It's either suffering that's by way of our own creating or our own making or suffering that's oftentimes inflicted at the hand of another person over our lives who has authority or power over us that causes deep pain and suffering over us. But the point that I would make is that, is that we see that these saints, they victoriously overcome, even though they have been trampled on by this beast, these beast-like figures. This is in contrast with the beast's, who actually caused the suffering, they will be defeated. So just listen to the passages, how this plays out. Daniel chapter 7, verse 26, the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away and be consumed and destroyed to the end. Now, I don't know how you think about the concept of judgment, or how you think about the concept of God being a judge, but I would suggest to you that this is a key elemental theme throughout the Bible. And what you oftentimes see identified throughout Scripture is that God rising up on behalf of the oppressed and saying, I'm going to step in. So this is one of the unique elements that, in a lot of ways, causes a lot of consternation in our modern world in which we live in, which, which, by the way, is a deeply secularized culture and society, which means that we become a culture and a community. I shared a statistic with you guys a couple weeks ago that San Luis Obispo is the, I think, ninth, eighth or ninth, uh, highest-ranked post Christian city, and all of America. Congratulations. So that means that we actually outbeat Portland and San Francisco. And uh, yeah, so that's that's slow. uh, The point of the matter that I would make is this, is that as a post-Christian community, the question is what's come in and taken its place? And I would suggest uh, secularism, meaning this idea we don't really need God, or if God is a part of our lives, he's a distant part of our life that we can We can choose to follow him if we want. I I like to think of it as we can accessorize ourselves with God if we choose, meaning if we go to church on Sunday, we put on our God face, uh, and then we go into the rest of our week or go to the nightclubs on Saturday night or Friday night or whatever it is that we do throughout the rest of the week, we just deaccessorize ourselves with God and we just kind of slip into our life. That's what secularism is. In other words, it it uses God in order to kind of build out our own persona. But the point that I would make is this. We live in a culture that if if we really are secular, the question that needs to be asked is how do we then have a compassion for those that are marginalized, hurting, suffering, broken, uh, or or oppressed? In other words, on on what basis? On what basis? If we're nothing more than neurons or chemicals coming together to create something that we just call society at, at large, how can we even stand and find ourselves having any form of anger ...towards a 12-year-old that's been in sex trafficked. How, how do we even process a deep uh, frustration towards that? The point that I'd make is this, is that the Bible answer from Scripture... ...is that because we're made in the image of God, human life matters. Because we bear his image. And because God cares about all human beings. And, and when there's uh, an injustice that happens the Bible says that this God one day will step in and render a judgment and remove evil from its source. But this is the amazing thing about the scriptures: that, that God's real aim is not to just simply remove evil at its source, but it's also able to remove evil without removing the evildoer. You understand this, right? It's the difference between removing a tumor and not killing the host that has the tumor. This is what God's up to in this world. His aim is to somehow not just simply rid the world of sex-trafficked children, but to reorient our sexual drives so that they're rightly ordered. Not to just simply remove mass murders that strap bombs onto their bodies and then walk into a busy downtown, but to change the fundamental way in which we think about other human beings, to love others, even though they're different than us. This is what the gospel is all about. God is about creating a new humanity. That's, by the way, is really good news. And if we were a highly Pentecostal church, at that moment, we should say, amen. That's awesome, right? And it's totally cool. Go ahead and do that. But the point that I want to end with this is that we see that the saints victoriously overcome, even though they suffer, but the beast ultimately is overcome. So take a look at verse 27 again. The kingdom, the dominion, the greatness, the kingdoms, under the whole heaven, shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. They're given this kingdom. I want to finish with a couple of thoughts because what we're invited to think about is the victory, to live in the status as being victors, conquerors, the way the New Testament would write it. In the book of Revelation, for example, uh, there's this first couple of chapters, chapter 2 and chapter 3, where John has this image of Jesus basically showing up and giving, like, a, an assessment test to the churches. Uh, and it's, you know, to some degree, you're like, oh, my gosh. Can you imagine what would Jesus think if he were to walk into Calvary Slow today? And how would he rate us? Like, how would he look at the general consensus of our church family? Would it be like, man, some of you guys are really working hard. You're doing amazing stuff. Others, you're you're, you're, you're overtaken by cynicism. You just sit in the back, and you judge, and you, and you do nothing. You know, like, what would Jesus say? Like, that's kind of a shocking thing. But one thing that Jesus says every single time to every one of the churches, seven of them, is he says, to him who overcomes, to him who conquers, I will give something. And then here's what he says in Revelation chapter 20, verse 22, 3, uh, 20, 22. I, I want you to, to read this with the context of Daniel chapter 7 in your head. So listen to what he says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat. The one who conquers, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This is literally, this image comes directly from Daniel 7. It's the image of the Son of Man being given a throne next to the throne of the Ancient of Days and the saints being given this throne that will have no end. What I want to do right now is I want to finish, and I want to just watch this little video clip and then... Uh, We'll come back up, and I'll, in fact, I'll have the worship team come on up and get themselves ready. And I want to watch this little video clip from the Bible Project. It's on new humanity. I think you guys will be encouraged by it. And then we'll finish just with a time of responding to what God wants to do in our midst right now. Not good. <laughs> Let's all stand, and uh, I want to ask just a couple questions as we go to response, because I, I don't know where you're at, and what type of. Challenges or thoughts that you 're facing right now, but I want to end with just a couple of what if questions what if what if we were to live from the victory that we 've been given if you are a follower of Jesus, what if we were to truly live from the victory not for victory we don 't create victory but, but we 've been given victory What if we were to truly allow that victory to reshape how we think about our present and our future uh, what if when we gathered as a community of people around this king who sets people free. What if we came with this deep-rooted expectancy that he wants to set people free and deliver them from sickness and illness and disease, and debt, and lies, and anxieties, and fears that cripple us, and from broken marriages, and from broken relationships, and dysfunctional families, and generational things that that have just we've inherited from our moms and our dads and our families that we see cropping up in us, what would it look like for us to truly enter in to worshiping this God that is truly good? So I want to invite you to respond. Uh, We will have some people off to the side that would love to pray with you. It's just an opportunity to minister to you anything that's going on in your life, any area, maybe disease or brokenness or ruin or lies that you have believed that you need deliverance from. In areas of guilt or shame or brokenness or dysfunctionality, you just need God's healing. We want to pray for you. We want to believe that this God is here, his presence. is not just something we, we, we wish would come here. His presence is here right now, and he wants to bring healing into those really dysfunctional, broken areas. So let's, let's respond to him as he rightly is. So let's sing as we go to the table as we eat the bread, as we drink the cup, as we respond in song and being prayed for. So Jesus, thank you for your great love. And we turn to you even now in faith and confidence and trust that you're the one that heals.